the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Whatever beef you have against, that's your problem. My conscience is clear. All right? Don't you want to live like that? You're going to have a lot of people have a lot of opinions about you. And you can spend your life trying to please them or trying to defend yourself. Or you can just decide, hey, before God, I'm conducting myself right in the world. I'm conducting myself right in the church. People can say whatever they want about me. My conscience testifies to my relationship with Christ. I'm clear about it. I don't really care what other people think. Today, Pastor Gary talks about how you can't please everyone. We discipline our children, not because we want to see them unhappy or feeling guilty, but because we love them and want the best for them. When John wrote to the church of Corinth, the letter was written and intended to do the same. If we know someone is making poor decisions, it's our job as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage and correct them. Is there someone in your life who could use your loving correction? Don't be afraid to come alongside them today and inspire them to be better. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Second Corinthians chapter 1, I just want to briefly recap a little bit and get our bearings straight here. The second letter to the church at Corinth was written by Paul from Macedonia. Macedonia is the northern part of ancient Greece. He is going to write to those who are in the southern part of Greece in Achaia, which is where Corinth is located. He wrote it the same year that he wrote 1 Corinthians, although late in the year, still it is believed to be 57 AD. It was hand-delivered to the church at Corinth by Titus. Titus was one of Paul's traveling companions, kind of a protege of Paul's, and he kind of grew up under Paul's mentorship. And we're going to see here that Paul decides it's probably not best I go back to the Corinthian church right now, so I'm going to hand deliver this letter by way of Titus. You'll find out why as we go along that he decides that it's probably not best for him to go back to Corinth, but for the time being, he's going to send this letter to the church by way of Titus. 
And this letter is written to refute the false teachers who have questioned Paul's apostolic ministry and who didn't like his first letter. You remember 1 Corinthians is rather corrective. It is a corrective epistle. 1 Corinthians is harsh, but he needed to be. I mean, the Corinthian people were messed up. I mean, the people who were in the church, not, not only outside the church, they were well messed up, but even people inside the church who were doing things that were just wrong. I mean, they were suing each other. They, there was sexual immorality. They tolerated it. They were getting drunk at communion. They were abusing and misusing the spiritual gifts. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians to correct them. And it was strong. Well, you know how it goes. If somebody tells you the truth and you don't like to hear the truth, the way that you try to avoid receiving the truth is by discrediting the messenger. If you can try to discredit the messenger, then maybe you can discredit the message. So there's some people in the Corinthian church who didn't like Paul's first letter, so they start stirring up trouble. And they basically say, Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. He's not really a legitimate apostle. I mean, after all, he wasn't part of the original 12. Paul ends his first Corinthians letter by saying, I'm an apostle, but one abnormally born because he didn't come in the normal way with the original 12. He had this divine encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. The risen Jesus appeared to him. The risen Jesus called him into this apostolic ministry. So he was assigned and called by God and by Jesus in particular. But the skeptics and the doubters don't accept his apostolic authority. So he's writing 2 Corinthians basically saying, listen, I've got some street cred here. I don't know if you people want to accept it, but I'm just telling you this is legitimate ministry. And he goes through and he makes a case citing different things. We'll end up recapping as we go through the letter, so I'm not going to go through the list again. But we left off at the end of verse 11, where he talks about the God of all comfort, how he comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others in their troubles. It's a wonderful chapter. We go through trials, we go through difficulties, but God shows himself strong through those things, and then often he will use those things in our lives to bring comfort to other people as a testimony of God's comfort in our lives. So the first part of chapter 1 is a wonderful passage of Scripture, but then he moves on here. I'm going to pick up where we left off in verse 12 of chapter 1. And he says, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. So this is going to be one of the points of his credibility where he says, you know, despite what you might think about me or say about me, I just want you to know my conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world in just the way we live outside of the church and in regards to you with, NIV says, with holiness and sincerity, King James and New King James says with simplicity and sincerity that are from God. The word conscience is the Greek word sunodesis. Sunodesis comes from two Greek words, sun meaning with, and oida, which is the root for the last part of the word, and oida, which means to know. A conscience literally means to know with. Now, from a Christian standpoint, Vine's Dictionary translates that word as this, a co-knowledge with oneself and God. So conscience is when you have an understanding of who you are and who God is, and it is a healthy, legitimate, real grasp of reality related to yourself and related to God. Now, kind of on a psychological level, the definition of 
conscience is the inner judge or witness that approves when we do right or disapproves when we do wrong. So it's that inner voice. Now, as a Christian, you know, I don't see it as an inner voice. As a Christian, I see it as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is my conscience now, and he bears witness with my heart to let me know things that are right and things that are wrong. And when I do things that are right, he bears witness, encouraging, and when I do things that are wrong, he'll challenge me in, in my heart. And if you're a believer, you understand how this works. Now, the word conscience is mentioned in the New Testament 29 times, 29 times in the New Testament, and often it is described with an adjective preceding it, guilty conscience. Sometimes you read in the New Testament. You can read about a clear conscience. You can read about a good conscience. You can read about, this is the worst, a seared conscience. Now, a seared conscience is what we call today a sociopath. Somebody who has no conscience because they've just been doing things so much, they have no guilt about anything, no awareness of what is right or wrong, that's a seared conscience. That's a sociopath. Those are the people you got to be really scared about. And I don't know what the statistic is for sociopaths, but the idea here is that Paul is saying, you know, look, my conscience here testifies. I've conducted myself fine in the world. I've conducted myself fine in the church. So whatever beef you have against me, because again, he's, he's defending his ministry here. Whatever beef you have against me, that's your problem. My conscience is clear. All right. Don't you want to live like that? You're going to have a lot of people have a lot of opinions about you. And you can spend your life trying to please them or trying to defend yourself. Or you can just decide, hey, before God, I'm conducting myself right in the world. I'm conducting myself right in the church. People can say whatever they want about me. My conscience testifies to my relationship with Christ. I'm clear about it. I don't really care what other people think. You know, he's saying, this is how I know that I'm pleasing God because my conscience testifies. We've conducted ourselves. And he said, especially with you in this holiness and sincerity. Now, again, King James, New King James says simplicity and sincerity. I think that's a better translation of the original language. It's not really the word holiness. It is the word simplicity, which I love because he's saying here, nothing flashy about his ministry. Nothing entertaining. You know, there's a problem, I think, in some churches today where they are more bent on being flashy and entertaining than they are just giving the simplicity of the gospel. Paul's saying, you know, nothing flashy about my ministry. I'm not trying to impress you. There's no gimmicks, right? He says, I just come to you with the simplicity of the truth. I'm just coming to you with the simplicity of the gospel and with sincerity. Now, I've mentioned the breakdown of this word before, but I love the etymology of this word because sincerity is a word actually from the Latin, from two words in Latin, sine, meaning without, and cara, C-E-R-A, cara in Latin is how you pronounce it, meaning wax. Sincerity means literally without wax. Now, why would they use such a word like that? Because in Roman times, when Latin was spoken, they would chisel a statue, right? You've seen, you know, various statues chiseled out of marble, beautiful statues. But if the sculptor makes a mistake in the process of chiseling, oops, chisels off the nose, they would take a glob of wax, because you don't want to ruin the whole thing. you got this beautiful statue here of this person, you know, and now I've just lopped off their nose. So they wouldn't destroy the whole thing. They would just take wax, and they would fashion the nose out of wax. And you couldn't hardly tell the difference until you bought it, took it home, and put it in your front window at your house. And then the afternoon sun would come, and then it would look like a bad plastic surgeon, you know, ruined somebody. And, it, and then the nose would just melt off because the wax would melt. So something that is sincere is without wax in the sense that something that is sincere is the real deal. You don't have any fake thing going on here. This is real. 
And Paul says, we've conducted ourselves in the simplicity of the gospel and with sincerity. There's nothing fake about us. We're the real deal. This is legitimate. And he says, continue on there in verse 12. He says, we have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. He's going to mention this potential for worldliness to creep into our lives, to creep into the church. He mentions worldly wisdom there in verse 12. In a minute, he's going to talk about worldly plans in verse 17. He says here in verse 13, For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, this isn't a pride statement. He's just saying, I want you to get to the place where you actually understand that my ministry is real. I'm I'm an apostle called by Jesus Christ. And I hope one day you'll see that. And that you can boast in our ministry just as we will boast in you on the day that we come to the Lord. He says in verse 15, he says, because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia in northern Greece and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? All right, so there again is that example about, he says, you know, do I do this in a worldly manner there in verse 17? One of the accusations the church had against Paul is you're fickle and you're not dependable. You say one thing and you do another because he had intended to come back and visit the church. He had already planted the church, spent a year and a half with the church and had been there. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians to correct them when he heard they were doing some things wrong. And he promised he would come to them again. And they're like, hey, you haven't shown up. You know, you're not keeping your word with us. And he says, look, it's not yes and no with me. I'm not inconsistent, okay? But there's a reason here that I'm not coming back to see you, all right? And he goes on, keep reading, verse 18. He says, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. It's not contradictory. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All right, now pause there for just a moment. Here's what he's saying. He says, the message that I delivered to you is not inconsistent. I don't say one thing and do another. Just like the promises of God are not inconsistent. When God makes promises, he keeps his promises. They are always yes in Christ. Now, that's what it means. It doesn't mean that we always get everything we want, you know, that God is a yes daddy, you know. I want this, yes. I want that, yes. It just means that when he makes a promise, though, his promises are always true, and his promises will always come to pass. So he adds the word amen because amen just translates that they will be faithfully fulfilled. So he says all the promises of Christ are yes, they are true, and they are amen. They will be faithfully fulfilled. In verse 21, he says, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Now please note, who is the one who is helping us to stand firm? It is God who makes both us and you stand firm. How does he do it? Next sentence. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing What is to come? Three things that God does as his investment in us to help us to stand firm in the faith. If you've ever felt like you're standing on your own, please note the Bible says 
God helps us to stand. Isn't that good news? Because it's hard sometimes to stand. I mean, it's hard sometimes. Just the pressure of the world and our own flesh and just, you know, everything that we're facing in life. It's hard sometimes to stand firm. So God says, I'm going to help you to stand firm. First thing is, he says, that he has anointed us. Now, that's an interesting word that is used, and sometimes it's often overused in some circles of Christianity. By the way, this is only the third time it's used in all the New Testament. You'd think it was used many times in the New Testament because the way people talk about the anointing. Do you have the anointing? Is God's anointing on you? And it's anointing, anointing, anointing. We hear about anointing all the time. The only other time that this word is used is in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 20 and in verse 27. And by the way, in 1 John 2, 20, it says that you all, as believers, have an anointing. Listen, the word anointed is just the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's where we get our English word Messiah. The Greek equivalent of Messiah is Christ, Christos. So the word Christ, Christos in the Greek, Messiah... Mashiach in the Hebrew mean the same thing. Christ and Messiah both mean anointed one. All right? So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who is the complete fulfillment of everything good and true and right and just. Now, you receive Christ as your Savior. You receive that anointing. That's what he's saying here. The Lord Jesus is the anointed one. So when you receive the Lord Jesus, you receive the anointing. So some people think that the anointing is only reserved for certain people, particularly for preachers. I know what they mean by this. I have people come up to me and they say, Pastor, the anointing was on you today. You know, I I hope it was there yesterday too. And I hope it's there tomorrow too. And I get it. There are some times that I feel like, wow, the Lord was really with me when I'm teaching or preaching. And there are other times I feel like, wow, I walked a dog. And every preacher feels that from time to time. It's like, wow, I really felt the Lord with me. There are other times just like, what happened there? You have Christ. You have the anointing. God's anointing is on you because his son is the anointed one. If you have the anointed one, you have the anointing. There are times that you might feel a special empowering of God for a specific reason or purpose. But that does not mean that the anointing comes or goes. Okay, so he says here, this is one of the things that among all Christians, God's going to help you stand firm because he's anointed us. He's given us the anointed one. And then the second thing in verse 22, he set his seal of ownership on us. Okay, this is kind of ancient language. An ancient seal was a wax seal that then had the insignia of the owner. So God is saying, you know, look, my ownership is on you. You were bought with the precious blood of my son. And I own you, and my seal of ownership is on you. And he says, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, a deposit here, this is like earnest money. Because, listen, the fullness of our salvation has not yet been realized. Not yet. You get saved, you ask the Lord to come into your heart, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, a seal of ownership. Okay, you belong to Him. You're on your way to heaven. Sins are forgiven. Great. But the fullness of our salvation has not yet been realized. Not until we're with the Lord. Not until we're out of this world and out of this body of flesh. So in the meantime, God has put us, if you will, on the layaway program. I don't know if you ever thought of yourself as like a gift at Walmart that has been put on the back shelf. But, you know, the big day is coming when that gift will be opened up and then the fullness of that wonderful gift will be realized, such is the case with our salvation. Okay, we're on our way to heaven, sins are forgiven, but the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. In other words, 
There's much more to come, folks, all right? There's much more to come than this earth. And I've said this many times before. For Christians, this world is as bad as it gets, all right? For non-Christians, this world is as good as it gets. But for us who have the hope of Christ and knowing the eternal reward of heaven and understanding that there's a future that awaits us, well, the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that what is to come. So God helps us to stand firm. He's given us his son, set his seal of ownership on us, given us his spirit, deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now listen, keep reading, verse 23. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. All right, now he's going to let us know a little bit why I didn't show up. He's like, I'm ticked off at you people. And I know if I had come there, I probably would have said stuff I regretted. I probably would have done stuff I regretted. And you wouldn't have liked it. You thought the first letter was bad. You wouldn't have liked second time. So he says, you know what? I did not return. He says, verse 24, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith. Notice this. It is by faith you stand. Now, wait a minute. I thought we just read that God makes us stand. And now it says you stand. Is it God or is it you? Yes. No, that's it. See, God is at work. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is at work. But he also calls us to stand in the faith. That it isn't completely dependent on him to make us stand, nor is it completely dependent on us that we cause ourselves to always be standing firm. It is this wonderful combination, and you'll see this all through the Bible, between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. God is sovereign, and he can do whatever he wants. But he also calls us to be responsible to do a part in our walk with him. He's not going to carry us the whole way. He's not going to hold our hand the whole way. This has to be something we understand is also on us to stand firm in the faith and to do our part while also thanking him that he's doing his part in holding us, in helping us, in causing us to persevere. So it is, it is both here. It is both God at work, and it is also by faith that we stand firm. Chapter 2. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. All right? Because it wasn't going to be a happy time. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So he's saying here to them, he's saying, the reason I'm not coming back is because I'm afraid I'm going to make you even more upset, and then I'm going to grieve you by what I'm saying, and then if I grieve you by what I'm saying, who's going to help encourage me? Not you. You're going to be so upset at me, you're not going to like what I say, so that's the reason I'm not showing up right now. And you know what? There are times... And we get this in relationships in general, don't we? There are times when things are so heated, you just need a little time out. Paul says, I just need a little time out. I can't come to Corinth right now. I'm afraid I'm going to say some things, do some things you people aren't going to like. So he says, that said, I want you to understand that first letter I wrote. Yeah, he says, I know. What are the words he used? He says, I wrote to you out of great distress, anguish of heart. And with many tears, 
He says, I was feeling for you. You know why I was so straight up with you? You know why I was so truthful with you and in your grill? Because I, I have feelings for you. I wrote out of the anguish of heart. I was crying when I wrote that first letter to you. He says, do you understand here? He says, I wrote this stuff not to grieve you. He ends that verse there by saying, but that you might know the depth of my love for you. One of the highest forms of respect that you can pay to a person is to tell them the truth, even when they don't want to hear it. Living in unity with one another is never an easy task. Every member of the church is unique and filled with personality. And with that comes opinions. As you've learned from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, though, unity within the body of Christ is a must. You don't have to agree on every tiny detail, but on the basic tenets of faith, members need to agree. Living in harmony does require humility and open communication and a willingness to follow the leadership God has placed over His church. We hope today's teaching on Cornerstone Connection has been encouraging to you. If you're in the area, we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia for a time of worship and Bible study. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our website also houses our archive of Pastor Gary's teachings through the Bible, as well as additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word. You can even download our mobile app to take Cornerstone Connection with you on the go. You'll find all this again at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of 2 Corinthians, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not a Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.